one of the very serious consequences that this law brings with them is that the people, general public, and legal profession as well, don't consider criminal law seriously. Because these provisions are just very, they, they can be, I would say, used for any political cause. They can be interpreted absolutely arbitrarily. It means that they don't have a kind of value as such. That's very dangerous, actually. Hello, and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. A few things before we get started today. In an effort to get some feedback and improve the show, I've created the survey about the show's content quality and to get listeners' general comments and suggestions. If you have a few minutes and want to tell me what you think, please go to seansrussiablog.org and fill out the survey. Many people have responded, and I thank all of you for your opinions. The consensus has been overwhelmingly positive. People really like the variety of topics and guests, even if at times they come across a bit esoteric. The biggest complaint so far is about the show's sound quality particularly when it comes to hearing the guests. I will put more effort into this because I think sound quality is incredibly essential. The survey will run until the middle of August. I will summarize the results in an upcoming podcast and blog post. I really want to get listeners more involved in the show, so if you'd like to ask a guest a question after listening to this interview, please submit one at seansrussiablog.org under the Submit a Question tab. I'll then get the guests to answer one of the questions and include it on an upcoming podcast. Also, I'm always looking to hear listener comments and questions, so submit them at seansrussiablog.org as well, and I'll read some of them on the next podcast. Last week, Putin signed the Yerevaya laws. Billed as anti-terrorist measures, these laws increased state surveillance and stiffened sentences for extremism and other speech offenses. Perhaps most troubling, the laws call for telecom companies to store data up to six months and provide the security services with the encryption keys for the data. The news site Medusa wrote the following in an editorial. The Duma has effectively destroyed Russia's freedom of assembly. Lawmakers have created restrictions that allow the state to control the mass media and imprison people for reposts on social media. The Duma has deprived hundreds of children of the chance to escape orphanages in Russia for foster families abroad. Lawmakers have legislated homophobia. 
they've declared nonprofits to be enemies. It seemed like there wasn't another law that could surprise anyone. On the last day before its summer recess and Russia's parliamentary elections in September, however, the Duma found a way. Yerevaya's legislation requires all telecom operators and many online resources to store records of every single telephone call, all correspondence, and any messages. When you call a customer service line, you're usually greeted by an automated voice warning you that your call might be recorded for quality assurance. Now you can play yourself that warning in your head. Every time you pick up the phone to talk to your parents, your friends, or your colleagues. And data encryption won't save you. The new legislation bans the use of any encryption that the federal security services can't crack. The main takeaway from Yerevaya's legislation is that the authorities have declared every last citizen in Russia to be a criminal suspect. To talk about these laws and their significance, I'm pleased to welcome Gleb Bogush to the podcast. Gleb Bogush is an associate professor in the Department of Criminal Law and Criminology in Moscow State University's Faculty of Law and counsel for Threefold Legal Advisors. He's the author of over 60 articles on Russian and international criminal law. His most recent commentary is Killing Russian Criminal Law for the Carnegie Moscow Center. Here's Gleb Bogush. This week, Putin signed the Yerovaya laws, which were co-written by and named after Duma deputy Irina Yerovaya, and these laws are billed as anti-terrorist measures. Explain what are the Yerovaya laws. You're right that one of the authors is actually this MP, Irina Yerovaya, but to be precise, there are several members who uh, co-sponsored that the draft law. It's actually a package of the several laws, quite a huge one. It includes amendments to the dozens of Russian laws, including the Criminal Court, Criminal Procedural Court, and also the many other important uh, legal provisions that have been amended by this law. And the, the proposed, the rationale of this law, official of purpose, is to, to raise effectiveness of the fight against terrorism and extremism and to ensure the, uh, the public security. That, that is the official, official narrative of all this, uh, of numerous amendments. Actually, there are two main portions of this provision. First, cons- uh, deals with the laws of communications, the law on the counteracts and terrorism. Also, pose the responsibility of the telecommunication providers to store the data, uh, for a long time. Uh, it's actually the, they should store all recordings for six months and also store metadata for three years. They also uh, require the postal services to inspect, to to check all the parcels of the postal for for its content, which has also raised some uh, concerns from the Russian post uh, providers. It is also restrict the missionary service of these so-called non-conventional churches in Russia. And the second law, the second bill, which actually was the matter of my concern was the amendments to the criminal criminal procedural code. It doesn't change a lot in the, um, the prohibitions, but actually imposes a couple uh, many new measures regarding the responsibility for terrorist and so-called extremist crimes. It's important to note that this second part concerning extremism is no less important than so-called anti-terroristic uh, legislation. So it's 
It, they go so hand in hand, and uh, this is a kind of Russian innovation to use this anti-terroristic measure to all forms of the so-called extremism. So that's that's important, I think, to to understand that it's not only about terrorism-related activity. So that's that's a huge that's a huge package, and actually there are no um, not feasible to to track all these new provisions. So that's one of the of the main difficulties that it's too huge in scope to to analyze. Let's actually talk about extremism a little bit because the extremist laws in Russia have been around at least, and I mean, from my understanding, at least since around the mid two thousands, and they've expanded over the decade to include. It seems to include all sorts of things. How did how is extremism defined legally? It's even earlier, it's uh, from the beginning of uh, 2000s, and actually when uh, the respective law on combating extremism was adapted, together with numerous amendments to the, the Russian law, extremism continues to be an uh, umbrella term, that it's not, it doesn't have the clear definition of what it is, it's uh, it defined as the, the number of activities, but uh, it, it raised from the basic provision of hate crime, that the, the incitement of hatred uh, against target groups, protected groups. But now it's, it's, it is true that it's, it encompasses lots of offenses. For example, the, the mass disorder or mass uh, unrest, the various form of so-called extremist speech. And uh, this is, uh, was the concern of, from international legal community and from the Venice Commission. We still have the number of the Council, uh, Venice Commission of the Council of Europe. And the recent report of the Venice Commission uh, analyzed that the Russian government didn't comply with all these recommendations. The, the criticism was that uh, the, the law on extremism is too broad and too uncertain. And um, you're right that uh, I think from the, the middle of middle uh, 2000s, and actually it uh, started the, the, the most, I would say, the recent wave of these amendments, came uh, after the election elections uh, in 2011 when the criminal code especially criminal code there were several important amendments concerning the uh, the speech offenses so called speech offenses so the number of speech offenses raised significantly and they included for example the public calls for violation of territorial integrity it is now applied to the people who for example deny the annexation of Crimea, or they apply it also to the people who question the status of southern republics, the proposals, and so on. And it also relates to the, the first very, I think, weird memorialization law. It's the criminalized so-called rehabilitation of Nazism, but actually the content of this article have nothing to do with the rehabilitation. So it's uh, really the provision that now that uh, protects the so-called right or correct uh, views of history. It's also not in compliance with the current trend in international law. So that the actual extremism itself, um, I wouldn't say that the whole idea to combat the hate crime or to to, to xenophobia is uh, is a bad idea. Actually, I'm not saying that. And all the all the countries, democratic countries, have such provisions to suppress uh, violence and uh, even calls for violence against minorities, against targeting groups. But if you if you look at how this law are implemented, we have the very nice guidelines, for example, by the Supreme Court, which is really progressive. They underlie the, the need to safeguard the, the citizens' broad application of these laws. But at the same time, they are continue to be applied 
very arbitrarily for various forms of free speech. At the same time, for example, if you look at some really dangerous forms of the uh, the hate criminality, for example, the violence against foreigners, against, for example, LGBT persons, the, the police and the courts doesn't use these provisions. But albeit they are really, really fit the legal definition of the hate criminality. What the Russian authorities use that the, the police and the courts, they use this very broad term, uh, any social group. So any social group, the idea is clear that, of course, you cannot restrict all the groups that can be potentially targeted by the hate crime. But they apply this to the such groups, social groups, for example, like police officers or the supporters of the, the ruling party, for example, let's <laughs> It's actually the, 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 these provisions, the idea of these provisions to protect minorities, because minorities normally need protection from such kind of activities, not those who are in power, because it's enough to have the relevant provision that protect them from violence uh, for political motives. So that's unfortunately practice which is not, which is not stipulated anywhere. So it's not any, any guidance, for example, came from Supreme Court or any explanatory note for that uh, law, but it is unfortunately what is happening in practice. And so these this new provisions, they are only uh, support that trend of using that good ideas, not always for the good, good end. So why were these laws passed now? Because as you've said, there is a long history of these extremism laws and anti-terrorism laws. What are the origins of these laws? Did it, were they? Do you feel that they were, say, I mean, there's an impression that a lot of laws like this are written, say, from above and then handed down to Duma deputies, or did this come out of the Duma from these deputies? And, and what's the, the general context for them? I think we should be fair, first of all, that really Russia, Russian citizens also have been victims and have been targets of the terroristic attacks that actually happened, I would recall, just the attack on the airplane in what was applied from Egypt, numerous uh, attacks in the recent years that took lives of many Russian citizens, and we see that actually the, the threats, these terroristic threats are not illusory, they're real. But at the same time, there was no clear explanations in all the documents that, I would say, uh, accompanied these drafts, why it is required now. These particular measures are just the very general phrases like that the, the terrorism is dangerous and we should make the fight against terrorism effective, something like that. And these explanatory notes, they deserve, they merit some additional remark from my side because actually it is very, it's ridiculous when uh, the massive, huge draft laws that change, that changes actually uh, dozens of provisions, very important provisions, are supplemented by the exploratory note of two pages, which uh, says nothing actually why, what's the idea of passing this law now, what is the, the idea. So we, we don't know that from this official documentation, and unfortunately it's become customary for current uh, Duma, then, if you if you look at the the discussion itself in the parliament or around the parliament, I would say it's more it's more lively normally. This uh, MP member uh, have been asked several times why 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 now, and they responded quickly that okay we should fight terrorism, nothing more. So that that there is no explanations also from from them. 
I think that the the only only reasonable explanations is to that is the final step of this, this parliament, and it's kind of the way of complete legislative mission to to harsh the, the existing laws, and yeah, probably it's of course uh, they kept in mind the um, upcoming elections. And I would like to point to specific provisions concerning, for example, the mass rallies and so-called mass disorder. It is an article of criminal code that now also uh, included to the this extremism, this broad circle of extremist, extremist crimes that uh, was used as a very harsh weapon in suppressing political dissent after the, the unrest of 2012. And what is probably the general idea behind all these laws is to kind of cooling up the society if uh, something goes wrong in uh, in the course of election and after election. So that's always the kind of this uh, mantra that we should not allow these events to happen, events like uh, Maidan, events uh, in Ukraine or something like something similar to this color revolutions. I, I wouldn't like to speculate who are the people behind these members, because we don't know uh, this exactly, and uh, I'm not, I don't like this conspiracy talk. And I, I, I don't think it's it's uh, it's very important. It would be more important how it would happen, actually. So how was that uh, was allowed to, to happen in, in Russia, that uh, such laws uh, have been passed, the laws that uh, have been called by, even by some ministers, to be uh, deprived of common logic. I would recall not only the Presidential Council, Human Rights Council, but also the Minister of Communications who said that, well, uh, these laws are not very well uh, worded, they are not very well uh, prepared. So that, that's, that's even, even the mo- very loyal people, the people who lack any political, um, I would say, dissent, uh, even potentially, actually were very critical to these laws. I don't know any, um, I would say, independent or even, I would say, expert any legal expert, for example, who actually supported publicly these laws, uh, for the exception of the these members themselves, so that that's uh, that's important. That even in the atmosphere, that even absolutely loyal people are very critical to that uh, provisions. They are passed very very quickly. I don't know what what what's the need to to pass them so in I don't know several weeks. And one remarkable thing that happened between the first and second readings, because the first draft that was uh, introduced to the parliament contained the very absurd provisions, for example, of revoking the citizenship, which is directly contrary to the letter of Russian constitution, or, for example, restrictions of the the right to travel abroad. And these uh, provisions have been disappeared at night without any explanations. And some new provisions, for example, concerning missionaries, just they, they entered this draft also without any discussion. So that's, that's, uh, that is very specific way of lawmaking to my mind. Yeah, it's really interesting, this context, because as you point out, there was opposition from some official quarters. I mean, even to add to the Human Rights Commission and Communications Minister, you also had objections by the um, Titov, who heads the Business Rights Council, too. You had a lot of Duma deputies who voted against it. You even had a few senators vote against it. And there is even some speculation that Putin might actually even veto these measures. I tried to find his record of using veto, and it's it's actually quite rare. And then you have this the strange provision against religious missionaries, which also received a lot of outcry. 
So the context you would describe is quite really interesting, and it shows that the manner in which these laws were were not discussed and then put through at the last minute of the last six Duma, it does raise a lot of questions as to where all of this is coming from. Now, in your in your article that you wrote for the Carnegie Moscow website, and the article is called Killing Russian Criminal Law, you called the, the amendments to the criminal code in particular nonsensical and brazenly repressive. Why is that? I think the headline is a bit grammatical, but uh, it's, it's the process that, of course, not started by this law, but it is true that, that the effect on the general state of Russian criminal law is tremendous. And I also wrote that they didn't change laws in the, in the substance of the new on any new prohibitions. There are some, of course, new provisions that also cause South crime in the society. But what's, what's uh, the, the general spirit of this provision is contrary to the trends, some progressive trends that Russian legal system continues to maintain at least since adoption of the Russian constitution. The criminal code itself was based on the idea of the very compact, very clear criminal law that should be, should be clear and should be transparent for the, and should be certain for, for the citizens. What we have now that the criminal laws are intentionally, this is my view, sometimes intentionally, they are intentionally vague, intentionally uncertain. That means that they could be applied to case-by-case basis for anything that is considered to be even convenient by the, the police investigators. If we, if we look how these speech offenses provisions are applied, we can see that they are absolutely unpredictable and they are really selective. So that's, uh, that's, that is not about, let's say, Stalin-type pressions, but about the general uncertainty of this law. And I think one of the very serious consequence that this law brings with them is that the people, general public, and legal profession as well, don't consider criminal law seriously. Because these provisions are just vague. They, they can be, I would say, used for any political cause. They can be interpreted absolutely arbitrarily. It means that they don't have a kind of value as such. That's very dangerous, actually. That's very dangerous because even in the, I would say, bad problematic state, I mean, the, from the viewpoint of the legal systems, there are some important institutions that have to exist. Criminal law is one of them. So it's, it's, uh, the criminal law is not, and it's not only about the extremist speeches or even terrorist crimes, whatever dangerous they are. It's also about the everyday of the people and the real threats. Threats of violence, threats of threats to the property, and this is very important. And criminal law is not taken seriously. It means that it's not legitimate in the eyes of the citizens. That I'm I'm teaching criminal law regularly in the university, and I know that many of my colleagues, and sometimes even me, we cannot track all the amendments. Teachers of criminal law. What's about the the citizens? The the citizens who have to comply with all these provisions, and this is really a really dangerous trend. By the way, this, the, the very day that this law had been signed, there was another law took into force that decriminalized battery. Is the the offense that that is clear to everyone? That is very very important to have at least at least symbolic prohibition of that. And at the same time, the the, the harsher and harsher penalties for, for example, speech offenses. 
it's a really uh, troubling symptom that the the kind of hierarchy of the, the values in Russian uh, Russian uh, Russian law is also kind of changing more and more. Yeah, because the battery law pertains especially to domestic violence issues. Uh, they kept actually domestic violence uh, still, um, but they decriminalized the, the general provision of battery. They only, only left these, these domestic, and it was also criticized, but not by liberal uh, <laughs> MP members, but actually even from the Russian Orthodox Church that believes that treatment can be ac- acceptable in some circumstances. What is important that the, the trend is obvious to to change the idea behind the criminal law that was in the 90s. So that's important. The big takeaway from what you were saying is that this is ultimately undermining the belief in the law, the rule of law in general, because of the selectiveness of the application and the the harshness of it in areas that you shouldn't receive harsh prison sentences for some of these so-called crimes. So how society is going to react to these laws? You know, someone who's Seeing these things pass, how do you think will, will be the societal response? That we should distinguish. I mean, the points that the people just, uh, what, what the people think about that, how they consider this amendment and how they react in terms of the political reaction. Fortunately, there are different things. I see that that discussion shows it's the summertime and it's not, people are not very active. But the absolute majority of the, the people who have any idea of that are very critical. So that's, that is not like, uh, like it was, for example, with the controversial, I would say, foreign policy decisions, or even, if you remember, the, the previous laws of that time. So the people are generally very critical, and this label, uh, the Yaravaya law, is actually very negative, a very negative connotation now. But it's difficult to predict how the, the society would, would react in terms of the elections. I don't think it would be um, something standing uh, in comparison with other, with other kind of topics for the upcoming elections. But I don't think it's actually uh, would have some serious consequences. I think that, unfortunately, the public discussion of this, I would say, any serious uh, legal changes or political decisions, serious political decisions are unfortunately not in place. I mean, you don't have this political life as it should be. So that means that the people still continue to express their emotions and their approaches in the social network, unless they are blocked, <laughs> of course, <laughs> by the new technical measures. And that, that's it, actually. So that you're right that some, even some members of the parliament and even some people who are, can call them systemic politicians, made some critical statements, but it didn't change anything. That's important. So that, that directly shows that they don't matter. So this, this, this is a way, and this, this particular changes in the law, this amendment, I think it's a striking example how, uh, of this lawmaking strategy. I think that all experts in that, in that respect, I mean, in that particular laws, they all were against this. I recall the letter by the leading telecom providers. All of them signed this letter against I would say, fully political, very politically sensitive law, but they show that it's, it's impossible to implement. It's just a very bad uh, written law. And all them have been just disregarded. Just nothing. And, of course, the majority, the big majority of them just silent. Even some serious changes doesn't didn't make them to raise voice about that. So that also shows the current conditions, how the, the, the Russian society lives and operates. That's my concern that 
even these professional communities are not very active. They don't, I don't know, the, the, the bar association, they normally react only when something is about to happen with the bar itself. <laughs> that's, that's, that's amazed me. They, they work with these cases, but they don't care. They do care only when something is happening regarding the status of this bar. That's, that's a kind of wrong way of doing things. So because the quality of the laws and it also affects the quality of the decisions, of the quality of life in the country. The same applies to the, to the expression. The freedom of expression, I think, is a crucial victim, the crucial target of this policy, of these laws. When you don't have the freedom of expression, when the freedom of expression is restricted, is, so the result is poor decisions. And we see that. These decisions were taken just for the reasons, I mean, the, the quality of these decisions is just because of the previous press of freedom of expression. Now, you suggest in your article the possibility, and of course, we don't really know what will happen, but the possibility that once the new Duma comes in session, that these laws will be amended and softened. Do you think that there's a prospect of that? I think that it, as far as the, as the technical part is concerned, I think that, of course, something would be adjusted, I mean, to the, uh, the real situation, because it's obvious that, for example, the telecommunication providers or the, the even Russian Post is now cr- crying out loud that they just don't have equipment to, to check, for example, to inspect all these parcels. And quite soon, if, if nothing changes... So almost everybody in the country who is sending, who is using this Russian post would fill it because uh, it means technically that every parcel should be, should be open, should be inspected by this. And Russian post doesn't know how to do that. It's just one example. Uh, probably they would change. And there are many examples in the past when something, including the, the laws that came from the very, from these very members of this, of parliament have been I described it softened or a bit corrected, but but I don't think it, there would be some uh, some serious uh, serious change in the trend. Unfortunately, at least as it looks now, there's a kind of agenda for the next for the next years to keep kind of political life, social life under this this kind of chilling effect. I, I should I should say clear that I'm fully aware of the of terroristic threats and the need to adapt some measures. Because it, it, it doesn't happen only in Russia. You can see that these anti-terrorist laws exist everywhere and almost everywhere they raise some social discussion. And the need exists to, for some balance of the human rights, uh, society, in the society and to adopt effective measures against terrorism. But the way it is now implemented this anti-terrorist policy in Russia actually dangerous for the for the same values that terrorists also f- fight against. When all the values terrorists fighting against are actually sacrificed for the for the cause of fighting terrorism. And finally, I, I want to ask you about the international context of these laws and how they compare to other places. Because as you said, over the la- you know, especially over the last fifteen years, many countries have adopted laws relating to terrorism. Where do the Russian laws fit in this general trend amongst many countries in the West and the United States and elsewhere who are adopting similar laws? How do they converge and diverge from this, these general legal trends? Of course, there, there exists this trend, and uh, Russian law always adopted one of the, say, constant explanatory um, points in that law that 
that, okay, the practice of the other states suggests support that idea. So that's, uh, that's, that's not only Russia that do, does it, that are also other countries that also uh, adopt uh, such measures. And this is, this is, this is true, but to a certain extent. First, it's not always correct trend because there are many details. We think in generalities, you know, but we believe in details and these details very often crucial in explaining what is actually happening. But well, uh, the United States and uh, Great Britain and also the, even on the level of European Union, there have been some uh, truly intrusive initiatives. And some of them have been realized. There is the same problem, for example, with data storage and mass surveillance. But everywhere, it's also the matter of uh, judicial scrutiny. It's also always a matter of the need to compliance it with the requirements of the international human rights law. And in the European context, of course, they, they need to comply with the requirements of the European Convention of Human Rights. And in case of Russia, it is a very alarming signal. Since uh, one of the, the specific measures that are concerning mass surveillance, that there was a groundbreaking decisions of the European Court of Human Rights in the in December 2015, just several months ago, Roman Zaharov versus Russia, that dealt with the uh, mass surveillance techniques and practice of mass surveillance. And the, this decision, uh, there was an unanimous decision of the Grand Chamber of the Court that rendered an, an unanimously that Russian law on this mass surveillance, lacks necessary safeguards for the individuals to be protected from arbitrary usage of this personal data. And this is not only the matter of how the secret services use this data. It's also about the negative effect that possible leaks of this data can be used by the criminals. That is, that is a huge violation of the right to, to privacy. And instead of taking some... Uh, Compliance measures towards this uh, judgment. We have this Yaravaya package. This one example. The second example concerning the encryption. There is also um, less, I would say, that traced less attention, but it's very important uh, measure that requires the providers and especially messenger services to submit uh, these decryption keys to the security bodies. Uh, and this is this is also uh, the kind of contrary to the tre- general trend that uh, that uh, that underlies the importance of this technology, encryption technology, for not only for the privacy, it's also very important for the freedom of expression. It's uh, the, the last word, the brilliant uh, report of the general uh, rapporteur, freedom, UN uh, general rapporteur of the freedom of expression, it was specifically dedicated to the importance of this technology for the people in various countries when the encryption is the only only way to continue to, to keep this free speech and uh, to exchange information, to, to receive, to seek and receive information. So that this is definitely not the kind of general trend that the, that the states do whatever they want. It's much more difficult. It's much more nuanced. And so I wouldn't, wouldn't say that, uh, the Russian laws keep some, some general line. They, of course, are adapted in the, in this general context that it does exist, but it doesn't mean that uh, they are in compliance not only with the human rights law, which is, should be relevant, uh, regardless what uh, Russian law provides for this. Because it's not even if I have this, this new interpretation that, that the uh, European court decisions are not binding in all cases, but all these individual rights, this is also constitutional rights that are protected by Russian constitution. And this is, this is in domestic context very important. 
And for that reason, I think that I wouldn't say that these new measures are in compliance not only with the uh, international law, in requirements of the international legal standards, but also with the kind of general trend. And finally, I would say that even if some uh, other international actors, especially United States, it is not a great champion in this protection of human rights, especially outside US, but it doesn't mean that Russia should follow that practice. This this is always bad defense, I think, and this is this is a fallacy to always refer to some bad practices because it doesn't mean anything. So when we discuss the recent changes that could have dramatic consequences for the for the very functioning of the legal systems, that actually contribute to the global decline of quality of the political and legal decisions. That was Gleb Bogush, an associate professor in the Department of Criminal Law and Criminology in Moscow State University's Faculty of Law, and counsel for Threefold Legal Advisors. His most recent commentary is Killing Russian Criminal Law for the Carnegie Moscow Center. If you'd like to submit a question to Gleb, please go to seansrussiablog.org and click on Submit a Question. In the last podcast, I interviewed Josh Schifrinson about NATO's pledge to not expand eastward. A listener, Shane, asks, In an interview reported in Russia Behind the Headlines, which is available online, Gorbachev indicates that the pledge not to expand NATO related solely to East German territory and was fully and adequately covered in the agreements that were executed. He indicates that any question of other NATO expansion into Eastern Europe very simply never came up. It seems it wasn't in anyone's imagination at the time. I'm not so naive as to fail to recognize Gorbachev's personal interest in not being seen as having been duped, but it does seem that this interpretation puts the lie to the Kremlin position. I listened very closely to the podcast and never heard this distinction raised. My question is, might the pledge have been limited to East German territory as Gorbachev maintains? And here is Josh's answer. Indeed, the reader picks up on a thread that's been widely cited by Mark Kramer, Steve Pfeiffer, and other analysts. However, in my opinion, the Russia Behind the Headlines interview has been widely misinterpreted. The full interview is worth a look because just after saying that the topic of NATO expansion never came up, Gorbachev turns around and says that NATO expansion, quote, was definitely a violation of the spirit of the statements and assurances made to us in 1990. With regards to Germany, they were legally enshrined and are being observed, end quote. That's important because this second statement is Gorbachev saying that nothing was written down and the topic was raised obliquely, implicitly, yet still meaningfully. And indeed, that's the crux of my argument. Nothing was codified. The U.S. engaged in reassurance, vice NATO, with a wink and a nod, and that's the source of Russian complaints. So Gorbachev is actually laying out the Russian case. No formal negotiation over NATO expansion came up, but we darn well had the topic in mind, and we knew what we were discussing. Thank you very much, Shane, for your question, and, and Josh for your answer. And once again, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. You can also support the podcast by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. A big thanks to all of those who've contributed. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, 
or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Моя Марусечка, моя ты куколка, моя Марусечка, моя ты душенька, моя Марусечка, а жить-то хочется, я весь горю тебя, молю, будь моей женой.